live A-C-U. from the ACU of Texas Studios. This is the Clear Lake Today Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pots, Pans, and Pat, part of the Clear Lake Radio uh, Podcast Network, and you are listening to Clear Lake Radio. This is a food show where nothing is off the table. You know, for me growing up, the kitchen table was always the heart of our home. It's where the best conversations happened with friends and with family, and a place where really and truly love was the center of the room. So thank you for pulling up a chair and joining me today around my table. Uh, my name is Chef Pat Mayberry. I am the host and the executive chef at Southern Elegance Catering, and today I am so excited to have joining me at the Pots, Pans, and Pat microphone a longtime friend of mine, Chef Goldie Ruiz, thanks for pulling up a chair and enjoying me around the table today. Oh, a pleasure to be here. Now, March is National Sauce Month. Now, there are a few things in this world that I don't love more than a great steak with a fantastic chimichurri sauce to go with it. Um, what's, what's your favorite? sauce combination well being from south texas i have two Mm -hmm. one is a salsa tatamada it's a combination of ripe tomatoes diced onion serrano peppers onion and a touch of salt you're taking your puree it and you can use it with chips put it across your chicken roast it on your um, grill it up, put it across your fajitas, yeah. grill it. Um, the other is I like avocado and chile pekin or chile del monte uh-huh. and use it as a um, dip. Ooh, that sounds good too. Now, in, in your opinion, what's the difference between a dip and a sauce? Um, a dip is you, a dip is used more in the Mexican cultures Mm -hmm. as something to use your um, chips in. Okay. Um, A sauce is used in the Mexican slash Spanish culture as something, as a sauce that you would put across your chickens, across your foods. Okay. Sounds good. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Where, where, where was home for you originally before you migrated down here to Texas? Originally, well, I was born in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. Originally, I was raised in Baja, California, about mm-hmm. 180 miles south of Tijuana. Okay. So I have um, a little bit of, I have a varied background in the Baja, California food and the Tex-Mex food. And there is a huge difference oh, between the two. Absolutely. Both huge. are both are fantastic. Both are amazing, but both are, are light years apart from each other. Yeah. Just because of availability of product to some degree. Absolutely. For that. Um, now, as in your younger years, what were some of the the early food memories that you've had and, and what were a central part of those early years? Um when we were in Baja California, some of my earliest memories were we ate a lot of seafood. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Baja California is very uh, prevalent in more Spanish-style cooking, so the foods are not normally as hot and spicy as they are in our northern Texas region or other regions of Mexico. Okay. Um, once we moved to South Texas, which is the Rio Grande Valley mm-hmm. on the northern border of Tamaulipas, of course, we learned to eat different foods, which were spicier, more rich with chilies, peppers, corns, things like that. Right, right. Um, now, what drew you to the food industry as a career? I mean, your, 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 your family sounds a lot like mine, that you had great grandmothers and mothers who made these amazing dishes, ants, etc. And you just grew up around wonderful food. What made you go, I want to do that? My passion for good food, towards good eating, the thrill of tasting something new and bringing yourself into a different culture, a different uh, a palate. Mm-hmm. That that was that was what brought me really into the food industry. Okay. Um, my people were French and German. Okay. I married a man that was in the military. We traveled all over the world. And I fell in love with the different types of cooking, different palates, different flavors, and just blew me away. And that's why I came into the food service industry. Well, it all started, you know, basically with French cuisine being kind of the epicenter of the worldwide food movement because so many kitchens have adopted that French kitchen style of of battalion-type kitchen. Absolutely. Um, now I know at early in your, in your food career, you spent a lot of time with some pretty major hotel chains, Hilton Marriott, and you wore a lot of different hats. What all did you do while you were in the hotel industry? Um, I was executive chef at, as you said, some major chains. I was food, food and beverage manager, um, I also was garmage chef at a few of those um, hotels. Okay, for our for our listeners who aren't real foodie people, what is garmage? Garmage is making the food presentable, pretty. Um, sometimes you see pictures, and you see someone has made a duck or a goose or a uh, a plate that has some beautiful roses or flowers it's the art of food basically yes i remember when i was going through culinary school we had a whole section on just garmage yes and it it was one of my favorite sections because i did i made little ducks out of squash and (laughs) all kinds of things and you know radish roses and and it was such fun to go wow i didn't know i could do that And, and you know as i as i've gotten older uh, I don't get to do those sort of things as much because my clientele doesn't request that. But it's always fun when I get to get in there and carve on a, on a pineapple or carve on a on a pumpkin or something. Oh yeah, to be a centerpiece <laughs> of a dish there. So, um, which of those would you say was a favorite? I enjoy being the executive chef in any organization that I go to, simply because I get to work with the food, Mm -hmm. I get to enjoy the food, um, change taste around, incorporate um, 
foods for what wherever I am. The um, the region, the flavors, the influx of people, you know, into the hotels. I, I enjoy I enjoy working and playing with right. with, with the foods. Now, yeah, you know, it's funny that you said that because I, I I joke all the time. I'm 60 years old and still playing with my food. But, <laughs> but, but um, and I'd love to say that was an original idea, but I stole it from somebody else. Uh, now. The word executive chef, we, we see the shows on TV, and, and, and I, I don't want to make the comparison that those are true representations of what goes on in a kitchen, but we see something like uh, Gordon Ramsay in Hell's Kitchen, where all he does is stand at the pass and yell at people. That's not really what an executive chef does, is it? No, absolutely not. An executive chef is is a leader, a guiding person, the one that works with the entire team, um, whether it's the cooking, the banquet staff, the um, servers, the dining, food and beverage. The executive chef is the person that leads and guides this team as to what production there is to be, to the portions, the controls, the complete um, the entire circle of the system of or, the function, ordering the ordering the products, the entire system of the functioning of the food service for the hotel, the restaurant, the facility that you're in. The executive chef has duties that are different from what you would call someone that is a chef. Right. A chef. Chef de cuisine, for example. Exactly. A chef de cuisine, a sous chef. The executive chef is the person that works with these different chefs to produce different um, venues, right. different specialties. But that executive chef is also the one that has to go to the manager's meeting uh, every week with the hotel and talk about what the profit margins were and yes. make sure that you're meeting the corporate goals yes, on correct. things as well. So, That's um, You know, as as you were in those years... How much did you lean on your sous chef or your chef de cuisine to help come up with your menu, and how much of it was just you? You always constantly rely upon your people. You're not the you're not the one that always has the great ideas. You incorporate working with your employees, with your other managers of your team. Accept ideas, try them. Um, as being executive chef, yes, it's the job of the executive chef to be in charge of all this to, for the responsibility of the success or failure of the organization. But you constantly rely upon your sous chefs, your garmaset chefs, your your uh, kitchen supervisors, your kitchen cooks. It's it it all works together. Right, right. The the downside of being executive chef, depending upon the hotel chain you're with and, this, and the number of kitchens that you're responsible for in that particular hotel, is you don't get to spend a lot of time on the line, though, do you? No, you don't. You, um, as an executive chef, you get in there, you are able, you know, you, you put yourself in there. You You have to know what your team is doing so that 
you can make sure that everything, you know, the timing, the the portions, all of that mm-hmm. that goes together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't you don't get to enjoy food like you would if you were on the front line with one of your cooks. Right. And that is a downfall. That's a downside right. to it. <laughs> you know, there 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 is something gratifying when you pull a steak off the grill and you just know that steak is gonna be good. Oh, definitely. And yeah. and you kind of hope that you've got just enough of a break that once it goes to the table that you can peek out the door through the window and watch those eyes roll back in their head <laughs> and go, "Yes. We did it. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> we nailed it. Yep, absolutely." Now, you know, you've also done quite a bit of your career in smaller one, two, three store type operations. How does that differentiate from from the the major kitchen in a hotel? Well, it's definitely not a slower pace. Food service is a work industry, and you definitely work no matter where you are. Right. Um, How it would differentiate for myself is that when you work in a smaller environment, it becomes more personal. Mm -hmm. You... You get to know your team more intimately. You know, you get to know your customers more intimately than you would in a big environment, per se, a hotel, a uh, large restaurant. Right, because you've got those people that come in every Wednesday. Yes. Because that's that's the night that they go out. <laughs> that's right. You know, that's and, right. And depending upon what, what you're doing, you may have a daily special or something exactly. that it... it you know, this is the night that we go here for this. And repeat yeah. customers is what you want, especially, yeah. I mean, you always want that in food service, but in a smaller organization, your repeat customer is what you really want. Now, you're in the Rio, Van, Rio Grande Valley now. Yes. After, after getting to, you know, see a little bit of the world and, and be ex- exposed to world cuisine through the, the restaurants. What is it that is in the Rio Grande Valley that makes that rich Tex-Mex cuisine so unique uh, to itself. And, I, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the, the page back a little bit. Before I went into this industry, I was in sales. And whenever I had people come down to Texas from New York or someplace, one of the first things they wanted me to do was take them someplace for Tex-Mex because they can't get that anywhere but here in Texas. And and depending upon what part of Texas you're in, even then it can change drastically because what's down in Rio Grande Valley is not what's in El Paso. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Tex-Mex, first, the, the word Tex-Mex didn't come into being until the late 1970s. Um, it originally, back in the 1800s, came to be when Texas got its first railroad. Okay. So starting from there, the word Texan, Tex-Mex started being incorporated. But as far as a food or, 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 or being labeled as a cuisine, it didn't actually come into being until the 1970s um, when that word started being used because of the influctuation of visitors and people from outside of Texas. What makes the Texas cuisine unique 
um, in the Rio Grande Valley, let's just focus on that because as you said, it varies so much. Um, Southern border cuisine goes from San Diego, California to, to Brownsville. Brownsville, Texas. Yeah. It, it entails a large variety of um, cultures yes. in different areas. Yes. There's the Yaqui culture, the, in, the Indian cultures from California, Arizona. They have incorporated their cultures into the Mexican cuisines. Yes. Tex-Mex culture goes, it, it starts about El Paso and gets stronger the further east that you go. About Laredo is about a hitting point. From Laredo up to San Antonio, um, it, it sparses into Houston. From Corpus Christi South starts the very heavy Tex-Mex culture. Mm -hmm. Tex-Mex culture and cuisine is a combination of the people from the people that came in from the Alamo. So we have mm -hmm. the American culture, we have the French culture, we have the regional um, American Indian cultures, the native Mexican cultures, and what we have come to know, to, what we have built ourselves in each little region along the border from foods that are foods that are within our own region. Um, Mexican cultures normally didn't use corn. The the uh, American cultures have brought in corn. The American culture has brought in, or the Anglo-American culture right. has brought in the use of a lot of beef, corn, cheeses. The actual Mexican culture, when you get away from the border, doesn't use a lot of cheeses. Um, Tex-Mex culture does. Right. Mexican culture uses a lot of very nice, rich sauces. Tex-Mex culture does, but Tex-Mex culture incorporates a lot of the hotter spices. Um, when we when we talk about Tex-Mex culture, there's a lot of corn. There's a lot of pork. There are foods that they don't that until recent years. Um, further down into Mexico, they didn't use right the. Um, it's a mixture of so many cultures. Um, chicharrones, for example, mm -hmm. we all love chicharrones. Yes. Well, that is a French, that is a that is a leftover from the French that was brought into the Tex-Mex culture. Now we have Tex-Mex nachos. Nachos was not an original um, food item. It was it came to be from a Texas restaurant that some ladies used to like to gather at. You know, in the evening time, the man didn't know what to fill their bill because they just wanted to drink and have something to eat. So he invented nachos. So the Tex-Mex culture, as far as cuisine and the culture in itself, is a very unique and wonderful, rich culture of many kind of like I, I would say a boiling pot, a boiling pot yeah. of cultures. Yeah. So it's. If you've ever eaten Mexican food, you might not have eaten actual Mexican food. You may have eaten Tex-Mex food and not known it. Uh, I think a great example of that is fajitas. I Absolutely. Mean, up until the 80s, I'd never heard of a fajita. Fajitas All, were a trash food up until the 80s. Everything, you know, up until that point. Yeah, I never saw them on a menu. I never saw them anywhere. And all of a sudden, every menu had fajitas and, and carne gusada and carne asada. And, and it was like, wow. Well, here's a new one for you. We know what the fajita is that comes off the cow. Right. What is a chicken fajita? 
that's a new word. Oh, yeah. It's a new something that's come into right. being. Chickens don't actually have a faeta. No, no. You know, so yes, it's a, it's a, um, it's a culture that people are enjoying in the in their cuisine. Well, I think too Texas, because our identity as a state is so wrapped up in the cattle industry, uh, and and let's face it, you know you've got the King Ranch, which for many years was the largest cattle ranch in the world, literally ninety miles from the Mexican border. Some of that beef couldn't help but influence the style of cuisine that, that was down there absolutely the the tex-mex culture does incorporate the beef more than the mexican cuisine right the mexican cuisine has a lot of pork and chicken but as you said um being in texas we we do have a lot of beef that was that's been a mainstay for many 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 sure. years we have incorporated beef into the tex-mex cuisine right you know I, i've always said when when i think about and 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 i look at cities like san francisco and new york and chicago other big metropolitan areas and the melting pots that those cities are for cuisine i look at Texas the same way and it's bigger than just a city and as you travel through the state you watch the cuisine change as you travel through the state because over here on the east side of the state we're we're butted up against Louisiana and we've got access to an ocean and we've got so many great flavors that come from our our friends in Louisiana and what comes at the the seafood that we can get out of the ocean and and how many ways we can compare it, com, or prepare it uh, with the quote unquote Cajun touches to it or you know as we also border against Mexico the the Mexican flavors that come out of there uh, as well as just very traditional things with fried grilled etc you know you've got east or west texas which as we start to get close to new mexico you see those hatch chilies uh begin to become a prominent player in their cuisine as opposed to the jalapenos or the the serranos or or pequeños that we're used to uh down here on this end you know you go through uh up towards austin area in new braunfels You've got huge German populations there, even though, you know, what most people don't know is there's pretty big German population down right on the border, too. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, which n- most people don't realize there's a huge German and Italian population. Also Irish. And Irish, too. Yes. So, well, they ought to love St. Patrick's Day coming up. <laughs> <laughs> you can get home tomorrow for some corned beef. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Texas has seen those cultures have major influences on their food and now we've got some of our major cities that have close to a million people in the houston area that classify themselves as some sort of asian uh ethnicity be it vietnamese cambodian chinese etc so those flavors have started to influence what we're doing here and we've got all these fusion uh 
things that happen in Texas that don't happen anywhere else. And it's wonderful. Yes. It's wonderful to see this. Texas in itself is just so unique. It's yes. just It's just a montage of flavors, a, a uniqueness of cuisines, of people, of um, just everything. We, we are just a unique people. Well, I, I always <laughs> say, if you want to eat the world, come to Texas. Definitely. Because there's no place like it. You know, you can find anything else in the world has had an influence on, on cuisine here yeah. at, at some point. So, you know, one of the things, and I used to travel quite a bit down in the, in the Rio Grande Valley. One of the things that I always loved when I was down there is that area is so rich with his citrus trees, et cetera. How do you incorporate those flavors from the citrus into Tex-Mex? In the Rio Grande Valley, and like you said, we are so rich in the citrus industry. We incorporate that into one thing is pastries. Mm-hmm. We cross over, we make grapefruit pies, orange pies, cakes, um, empanadas, things like that. We also take the citruses um, we also take the citrus and we use it as marinades, okay. um, sauces, dips, and we 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 incorporate that a very high, very much into our foods. Okay. Um, the um, pastries that we that we incorporate down there, they might not be as sweet as what we as the Americans are used to, being as we're used to more um, French and German and sweet um, sweet pastries. The Mexican pastries don't seem to be, they're not as sweet as the American pastries. Okay. But it, they're absolutely delicious. With, okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. You only get to have one Tex-Mex dish for the rest of your life. What are you going to eat? What we call something that is very unique in the Rio Grande Valley, we call it a botana platter. Okay, what is that? It's not a parillada. A botana platter is a nice big plate of nacho chips, fresh nacho chips, Mm -hmm. loaded with refried beans and yellow cheese, topped with fajita or grilled, grilled fajita, grilled chicken, and you mix it together with some grilled jalapenos, onions, tomatoes, mm. and then to your liking, you can add some taquitos or some quesadillas and put some sides of rice and beans with that, and that's my favorite. Yum. And a big portion of guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, if you know, you, you've done the, the mom and pop stuff, You've done the major hotel stuff. What are you doing now? Um, currently, I have a business in the Rio Grande Valley in Mission, Texas, okay. and it's called Delicious Delicacies. Um, I do everything from Tex-Mex cuisine to pastries. Okay. But it would be more like French or German pastries or Southern-style pastries. But that is what I am currently doing. Okay. That's, that's really neat. I'm glad you're doing your own thing now. With um, everything going on in the country right now with the coronavirus, and you know there there's so much panic and fear going on. What are you seeing down there as far as tourism, people eating out? Are you seeing 
cautious optimism people still going out or are they just hunkering down and staying home currently at this point in time um what i'm seeing in the rio grande valley is it has really not stopped um the economy Mm -hmm. south padre island did not close Mm -hmm. um it is still still right now open for spring breakers the concerts are still going on um yes people are watching themselves as far as going out but as far as the restaurant industry um just not doing things it has at this point in time it has not seemed to hinder the rio grande valley very much it's not it has not affected us right now like what it has affected houston san antonio these other places yeah we're 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 seeing we're on lockdown up some some issues up here where events are being canceled i've had i know catering events that i've got coming up in the next two or three weeks most all of them have called me and said can we reschedule it for later in the year we just want to get through this i've been very blessed that no one has just outright canceled the event but they've just moved moved them and it it is creating a, a cash flow issue Correct. Uh, for not just our company but many other companies oh, yes, definitely. Uh, that are out there so um, you know I have said over and over again since all this started a restaurant's one of the safest places you can be for the simple reason the health code restrictions are already in place and have been since the day they opened the doors that they're using a bleach solution to wipe down the kitchen to avoid cross-contamination they're using a bleach solution mixture to wipe down the tables after guests leave which they've done forever yes uh so when you go into a restaurant right now feel confident that there's a better chance of that place being clean and sanitized than most any other place you're going to go. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, with uh, Now, I asked the question earlier, the difference between a dip and, and a sauce. Where does salsa, as we know it, fall into that category? Salsa, as we know it in the Tex-Mex cuisine, um, is a basis usually of tomato. Mm-hmm. And we, as a Tex-Mex, we use it more as a dip instead of an actual sauce that goes on our food. Right. So we use it to... We're dipping chips. Yes. And we also, and when we say salsa, we also use it as an enhancer. Yes. Um, Normally in the Tex-Mex cuisine, it is not served on an item. It is served on the side so that the guests, the person that, you know, the person that's eating the food, they can use a sauce as an enhancer to their food in case it's too hot or, you know, to their liking. What's your favorite pepper to work with serrano so i love serranos i like serrano for the one main thing it has a it has a consistent flavor yes um jalapenos vary from super super hot they've made so many breeds and hybrids that now that it's kind of hard to say oh well let's just say for example heb i'm going to go to heb or one of the grocery stores and i'm going to get some jalapenos well you might want to go you might go to one grocery store you get a super hot jalapeno right you know and it goes all the way down from super hot to 
tasting like a bell pepper. So jalapenos at this for cooking to me are very inconsistent. Serranos are very consistent in their heat and their their you know their heat factor. Right. So I like cooking with serrano peppers. Now one of those old wives' tales that somebody told me years ago is that you can look at a pepper and and I'm going to pick a serrano since we both love those. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a straight serrano versus serrano that has kind of a curve in it. The one with the curve in it has got more capsaicin, therefore is going to be hotter versus one that's straight. Have you found any truth to that old wives' tale? Because I personally haven't. But I personally haven't. <laughs> but hey, you know, there always has to be something to those old wives' tales. Right there, folks. <laughs> Mythbusters right here on the air. There's there's no difference. But, but there is a difference in the heat in a, in the serrano pepper or the jalapeno oh, pepper yes. when it goes from green to red to, to yes. the yellow. You know yes. the different stages: yes. the oranges, the reds, like that. Yes. There those is cap, a difference. Those capsaicins. The capsaicin. Yes, exactly. There is difference in heat when it goes to its different stages. They, they do <laughs> intensify. Yeah. Now, one of the things that is super popular right now are ghost peppers out there is that a pepper you work with at all no not in the mexican cuisine okay. um, the ghost peppers are in other cuisines indian cuisines i believe um there are other peppers peppers that are extremely hot in the um, oriental cuisine yes um the hottest pepper that i would that i work with or that i've known chefs to work with in the um popular wise in the hispanic or the mexican cuisine would be the habanero yeah the okay. habanero is it's hot enough unto itself but it's not hot enough that it's that you can't actually taste the flavor right it, you know it enhances and brings out richness in foods so no the ghost pepper those peppers like that we don't work with one of the things that i love about tex-mex cuisine particularly are how you can have the same pepper be called two different things depending upon its stage of life. Yes. You know, jalapenos can be one thing when they're green and fresh off the vine, but you dry them and put they them... have a different name. Put, put them in some adobo sauce and they suddenly become chipotles. Exactly, exactly. And the flavor changes as it's dried how how much do you count on dried peppers for seasoning um i count on them in certain dishes like say for example if i'm making mole Mm -hmm. there's four or five depending on what mole you make there's black mole there's a regular you know dark brown mole um you depend on peppers a lot when you are actually making sauces Mm -hmm. and the different stages you can buy them green um for example, I do buy a lot of my peppers green if I'm going to use them for the for enhancing, enriching, making my sauces. I buy them green, I hang them up, I lay them, I do whatever uh, the process is for tempering those peppers to use for whatever dishes I'm going to I'm going to use them for. So it it, it definitely makes a dis, dis difference at what stage you use the pepper for its hotness or for its flavor. Also, de-seeding in peppers makes a difference. If you leave the seeds in a pepper, normally it's going to be hotter. So right. for your sauces, 
things like that, normally you de-seed the peppers. Now, if somebody was only going to take one thing away from our conversation on Tex-Mex food today, what do you want them to, to take? What's your takeaway? My takeaway is sit down, relax, and enjoy. Yes. Yes. Because there's nothing like a great Tex-Mex meal. Absolutely. You know. The environment, the people that you're surrounded with, the the happiness of eating a absolutely delicious food. There there have been hundreds literally of Mexican restaurants throughout Texas that I've had the joy to pull up a chair and eat at. There are no bad enchiladas, folks. <laughs> there might be some that you like better than others, but there are no bad enchiladas because that's something that has to be made by hand. You can't do that with a machine. Enchiladas have to be done by hand. And that's I agree. That's what I love about this cuisine is none of it can be done by a machine. It all has to be done by hand. If you're making beans, you got to stir those beans. And then if you're doing refried, you've you got to sit there over that pan and mash them down and stir them and mash them and stir them. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, great rice uh, comes from tending to that pot and showing it some love. So, you know, the next time you sit down to what you think is a simple plate of, of Tex-Mex, think about the love that went into that dish. Somebody spent a lot of hours to make that dish look so simple. And, you know, before you throw it away as trash food, too, think about the fact that rice and beans throughout history have been paired together as a, as a protein substitute. So, you know, if you're eating something uh, that's got rice and beans in it and then you've got something with a tortilla and a, a sauce of some sort over it, you're getting a pretty good meal that will sustain you despite what you've been told by some of these health experts here. Yes. Um, now, one of the things that I've been asking guests as they've come on the show, what's the one tip or trick you could share with somebody uh, to make a great dish? And it doesn't have to be a Tex-Mex dish, just to make a great dish. Well, being as we're on the theme of Tex-Mex, I would kind of keep it with that as a cooking tip with your Tex-Mex food. Mm -hmm. um, char, if you're making salsa, char yes. your salsa ingredients. Just add a touch of fire to your food. Don't overdo it because you want to be able to taste the flavor and the culture of the food that you're making. Yes. A touch of spice. And don't cheat on the quality of your ingredients. There because you if you cheat on the quality of your ingredients, you're not going to, you're going to be able to tell the difference mm -hmm, in it. Mm -hmm. So that would be my advice in making Mexican food, Tex-Mex food, or any food altogether. Just don't cheat on your ingredients. You know, Mexican food as we know it today has been heavily influenced by Spain. Because all those years ago when the conquistadors came through they left their imprint on on the country with their food and coming up on on the 27th of march is national spanish paella day oh. is is paella something because of where you're located uh right there pretty close to the gulf of mexico is paella a dish that that you see 
often and, and get requests for? No, not in the um, Tex-Mex culture. In Baja California, uh-huh. it would be because paella is, um, it is a dish that is typically made, you make the rice yellow, mm-hmm. it's made with saffron, and there are a lot of mariscos, which is seafoods, clams, mussels, uh, octopus, school pieces of squid, uh, shrimp, things like this. So in the in the Tex-Mex culture, we don't have really a um, dish that is called a paella. Um, we might have some grill, you know, grilled or boiled seafood items. Right. But in Baja California and the regions to the west of us, paella would be a meal that you would find on a menu because of the Spanish influence. March the 28th is National Something on a Stick Day. What's What's the best? Tex-Mex thing I can put on a stick. Sausage on a stick. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Goldie, thank you so much for coming by. Now, your business, is mail order something that is possible? It's catering. It's all catering. It's catering okay. except for the pastries. Pastries okay. are mail order, yes. Okay, so for our listeners, if they wanted to see a menu or look at having something mailed out, how would they find you? Um, they could find me on, on Facebook okay. through Goldie, G-O-L-D-I-E, Ruiz, R-U-I-Z. Or my email address is chefgoldie01 at yahoo.com. Awesome. And what types of desserts could or pastries could we look to see on, on your menu? Coming, coming into this time of year, spring season. Oh, my goodness. Coming into this time of year, we have coconut pie, coconut cake. There's flans, capirotada, mm. lemon meringue pie, um, orange cakes and orange fruits, um, citrusy items, yes. basically, because we are um, in, in the season where we still have our fresh, wonderful Texas ruby red grapefruits. Yes. Yes. So grapefruit pies, any of anything that's light chiffons, anything that's absolutely delicious, that's what I have. And uh, typically, from the time that someone were to place an order, how long does it take to ship? I would ship it out the next day awesome. once someone places an order. Fantastic! So, guys, if you're looking for some great desserts, give my friend Goldie a call. She will take good care of you. Uh, we need to wrap this up unfortunately but you and i can keep talking as soon as we get off of the microphones here um thanks guys for tuning in today we appreciate you pulling up a chair and being around the table uh talking food with us today for all my family over in norway here's a great big hilson fry texas for you and for all my lone survivor friends and family uh mama chef and papa chef always going to have your six we love you guys we hope we're going to see some of you real soon to continue this conversation on facebook i invite you to follow me on pots pans and pat thanks for listening today and remember if we're talking food nothing's off the table bye-bye y'all